Today, we're very lucky to have Julian Ives, the founder of Dragonfly with us. Dragonfly make a range of ecological plant health products specifically aimed at gardeners. So Julian, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself, about your professional journey and how you ended up doing what you do now. Yes, thanks Anton. Thanks for inviting me onto, onto this podcast today. Um, yeah, I suppose the, the, uh, the start of my horticultural career a long time ago, and I was working a little bit with pesticides um, for a horticultural sundrysman. Um, quickly learned that I wasn't very keen on selling pesticides. I didn't really agree with uh, the whole concept. And at that time, one of the sort of pioneers of biological control, a company called Coppet Biological Systems, which you might have heard of, was just coming into the UK and they approached me to, to go and work for them. So I started my sort of role in, in biological control, if you like, um, at Copper Biological and learned my trade there. And I basically was visiting growers and farmers for about 10 to 15 years, advising them how to, to reduce their use of pesticides and switch to using uh, natural enemies and biological control. So that's that's how it started. Uh, I then set up Dragonfly as a, as a vehicle to sell biological control products to, to the consumer market and to hobby gardeners. Um, so Dragonfly takes professional products, if you like, and professional knowledge and, and repackages it up basically into a format that, um, that gardeners and hobby growers can use. So you've really taken what you've learned from the sort of professional market and, and taken that out to gardeners. So that's, that's a really good thing. So perhaps not everybody knows what a biocontrol is. Um, I know they've been used for quite a long time, but perhaps could you explain what they are to our listeners? Yes, I mean, biological control, um, as, as a sort of simple definition, if you like, is, is the use of, of natural enemies or predators to control pests. So rather than using a, a chemical insecticide, you're in, introducing the natural enemy of that pest, um, whether it be a parasite, a predator, a microorganism like a fungi or a bacteria. So these are things that sort of happen in nature anyway, but we're giving them a bit of a helping hand, a bit of a boost. And now I remember as long ago as... I think in the 1990s, when I went to agricultural college, we went on a trip to a cucumber farm and, and they were using biocontrols then. They weren't actually using pesticides because they would actually harm the biological control. So I expect it's come on a long way since then. So how yeah. much are biological controls used by the horticultural industry? Well, it's interesting you mentioned cucumber growers because that's that's where I started working with copper primarily. So I was visiting cucumber growers and tomato growers back in the 90s. And, you know, we had about three beneficial insects we could sell uh, those growers. So it was a very, very limited range. But since then, the the expansion has has been incredible. So we've probably got sort of 30 or 40 different, possibly even more beneficial insects that we can offer for different pests now. And it's spread out from, you know, uh, just food production now into into ornamentals as well. It's always been primarily under glass, protected horticulture, but it's now even spreading into, into outdoor growing as well. So the advance into, into other sectors of horticulture is, 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 has been massive, actually. Yeah, I mean, I can see how they can be used in a glass house because it's a really sort of contained space, but um, perhaps using them in a garden is, or using them in a sort of bigger outdoor space is something that people perhaps wouldn't think would be possible with biological control. You might think that if you release something, they're just all going to going to escape. 
So they've been used a lot by, by the industry. To what extent have they been taken up by gardeners? I, I've certainly seen quite a few which are available now, quite a wide choice, in fact. Yeah, so it, it, is, it is increasing all the time. The limiting factor, as you say, has, has sort of been the fact that people are, are, can't really understand how we'd put something outside. But I think the breakthrough has, has come through with the use of nematodes, nematodes, uh, sort of microscopic eelworms, which we can water into the soil or grass to kill various pests. And they, they can be used indoors or outdoors. And that's, that's kind of opened the door for sort of outdoor gardeners, if you like, um, to use biocontrol. And, and nematodes now are becoming more and more commonly used. They were limited in, in where you could get them, certain, certainly sort of prior to the internet or the widespread use of the internet. It was difficult to get hold of them um, because you've got you know, obvious storage issues with places like garden centres. How can they store a live insect? But now with, with the internet, you've, you've got a massive array of, of retailers where you can buy these type of products. And, and it, suits, it suits them very much because you, they're a live product and they can be dispatched quickly, direct to the end users. If I was a gardener, I wanted some nematodes. I mean, how would I actually get them in the post? So, yeah, you would just go onto our website. We would have a, a section for pests and you would just type in vine weevil or slugs or whichever pest you were trying to control. And then you'd be given uh, you know, various options of different pack sizes of nematodes. It'll be picked and packed and, and literally sent in the post or by a courier. So it's, it's very swift, very swift. And when my nematodes arrive, I mean, what will I actually receive? Yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting question, because if you've never used them before, you sort of have perhaps a quite a strange vision of what a nematode might be, because when you read the product description, you know, a lot of them will say contains 50 million nematodes. And you think, gosh, that's going to be some huge sack of worms who's going to arrive. And you actually get a very, very small pack. And the nematodes are supplied in, a, in like a carrier material, which used to be clay or it's a similar type material now. So it's a small inert carrier which contains millions and millions of nematodes they're not visible to human eye or not very easily so you just literally see the carrier material and then you mix them up in water and then you water them on i have tried it myself i seem to remember it looking a bit like peanut butter and you had to really give it a good stir into the watering can but yes yes perhaps had to have a bit of blind faith that it was going to work as well (laughs) but um obviously lots of people use them and find them effective so they they obviously do do their job what would you say would be your sort of top tips for gardeners considering if if they're going to use biocontrols yeah it's, it's a good question because as I said earlier, there, there is quite an array of products now on the market. And uh, the thing with biological control is it's, it's, it's not particularly cheap. It's, it can be quite expensive. And it's certainly expensive if you choose the wrong product. So the important thing is to identify the pest properly. So make sure that you know the pest you're, you're going to treat, um, because a lot of the products will be quite specific to particular pests. And that's certainly the case with nematodes. Um, some nematodes will work on some pests and not others. So if you, if you identify the pest correctly, that's the first thing. And then you can choose the relevant biocontrol. And then secondly, really, is the, the environmental conditions. So you need to apply them at the right time, obviously, usually when the pest is there. But also, more importantly, uh, at a time when the climate suits them. Because most of these insects or organisms need certain temperatures to, to be active. So it's, it's not realistic to try and apply them in the middle of winter. Okay, you might say, well, I might have the pest in winter, but some pests will appear when it's reasonably cool and they can survive 
sometimes in cooler conditions than some of the beneficials can. So you need to check the, the information on the websites or on the internet for when to apply the products, when, when the correct timing is. For nematodes, for instance, generally, they need a soil temperature of about 10 degrees and above. So you wouldn't really want to apply nematodes below 10 degrees C, for instance. And that, that would be a sort of defining factor on, on whether your nematode is going to work or not. I seem to remember that watering was very important with nematodes as well. You needed to keep the soil quite moist, otherwise it... Yes, that's very it. true. Yeah, I mean, that. yes, that's true. That That's also part of the climate and the environment um, situation. Um, if, if, you, if you've got a sort of rock-hard soil and you try and water nematodes in, they're just going to sit on the surface and not get anywhere. So we... We always advise that you, you pre-irrigate, you water the, the ground first, make sure it's moist, then water nematodes on, and then probably even water the, after the application of nematodes just to really make sure that they've moved into the soil or compost and they can then move through the soil or grow media to get to the target pest. And another thing with, with the nematodes in particular is that they are UV sensitive, so the timing of the day when you apply can be quite important or the, or the type of day. So if it's a very bright, hot day, that's not good for nematode applications. In brighter conditions, really, you've got to, you've got to go early in the morning or, or, or sort of late in the evening to try and maximise the time when there's plenty of moisture around. But if you apply them on sort of a lunchtime on a bright day, you, you're not going to have a very good, uh, good result. So I get the impression with biocontrols for gardeners, they're a little bit on the pricey side. So you want to make sure you get the right product for the right pest. But paying attention to the details of how you apply it is really, really crucial. No sort of slapdash applications. You really do need to read the label carefully. Yes. Um, are there any ones which you'd say have been the most popular with the gardeners? Which biocontrols do you think have really sold well? Uh, well, generally, again, nematodes, just because of the pests that we use them against, tend to be the more common ones. So most British gardeners will will have had or encountered slugs before, and that's one of the most common nematodes for use against a garden pest. Second to that might be vine weevil larvae. And again, we're using nematodes against vine weevils. So... Having said that, on the predator side of things, the use of ladybirds is very, very popular now. I think partially because people just like the idea of ladybirds and it's a sort of very popular insect, but also they are very effective predators of aphids. And you can, you can buy ladybirds in, in an adult form or a larvae form. So you might think, well, why would I put a ladybird in the garden? It's just going to fly off. But you can buy a, a larval form when they, when they haven't got any... Uh, wings at that stage and that, that's quite a nice way of applying in a garden because you can you can directly pull them out onto a onto say a rose bush or something and they will they will spend part at least part of their life cycle on that bush developing and feeding on the target pest before they develop into an adult and if if they fed in in that area already you've got quite a high chance that even the adult will stay there at least at least until the pest supply is, is used up. I'd never thought that the larvae couldn't fly. So that, that really does give them a good advantage, doesn't it? Because they will actually stay, stay yeah. put. I, I often think that perhaps ladybirds sort of unfairly hog the limelight. I, I think perhaps we ought to perhaps give a bit more credence to things like the tiny parasitic wasps and things which do an amazing job as well. Do, do any people buy those? Or yeah, oh, yes, popular? much indeed. I mean, you're quite right. Ladybirds get far too much of the press. There, there are many, many others. Uh, the, the parasites do ten, generally tend to be the ones we use inside. But if you're growing a crop of, of tomatoes or cucumbers, even in a, in a small greenhouse, 
you're probably going to get white fly at some stage. Um, and we have very f- efficient parasites of white fly parasitic wasps um, with something called Incarsia famosa, which is which is probably the oldest biological control. Incarsia famosa was, was was used even before World War II, so it's it's been around a very long time, and it's probably the sort of the classic biological control. Um, so that is certainly one. And then you have other predators like spider mite predator, Pythocelius which again has been used for, for very many years. I think it was first used commercially in the sort of 1970s. And, and that particular predator pretty much saved the cucumber industry in Holland, for instance. So they, they'd got to a point where all the phytomites were resistant to insecticides. They were just putting in buckets of insecticide onto their cucumbers, no effect whatsoever. And then um, it was the founder of Copper, Jan Copper, came along with a predatory mite he'd found in Chile, introduced it onto the Dutch cucumber crops and pretty much single-handedly saved the, the cucumber industry. And, and that was probably the kickstart to sort of commercial use of, of, of biocontrol, certainly in Europe. It probably was used a bit earlier in, in the Americas, but um, in Europe, that was, the, that was the turning point. That's a really great story that they, this sort of single mite managed to save the cucumber industry. I think I really yeah. like that one. <laughs> um. Shall we move on to biostimulants now? These are something that's just really quite different, and I don't think the public are that aware of them. They've come to the fore quite a bit more recently. Could you perhaps outline what a biostimulant is? Yes, you're right. It, it's, it is similar to where we were with the biological control, that we're just starting on the sort of biostimulant story, if you like. They've been around for a while, but they're coming more into public focus now. And um, basically, they are products which stimulate the plant's natural processes, if you like. So they, they stimulate the plant to do things in a more efficient way, um, whether that's uh, improving root growth or actually converting amino acids into proteins. But they're, they're basically stimulating the plant to be more efficient and they do that in a natural way they are normally plant-based there are some which are not but certainly the ones that we market are are plant-based but they're they're not a some people think they're a fertilizer some of them will have a fertilizer content um, but they're not a fertilizer they are they are aiding nutrition because if we get the plant acting in a more efficient way then that helps it take up more nutrients so it's all about making the plant processes better Perhaps putting it very simply, it's almost like a boost to the immune system of plants if plants have such a thing, which is quite a topical thing at the moment. It's almost like a vaccine for plants. It, it is. Uh, there, there is a similarity there, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it seems quite a change in mindset, really. Rather than trying to actually wipe out the pests, you're trying to strengthen the plants, which from an ecological point of view as well, that seems sort of vastly preferable, a sort of much better way of going about and protecting our plants. So if I wanted to use a biostimulant to improve my plant's defence against pests, can you think of some examples or how I'd go about doing this? Yes, I'm just touching what you said before. I think one of the reasons we're interested in it is, is because it, it makes the plant less attractive to pests. So if you've got a plant acting in a, in a more efficient way, so that's to say they're converting amino acids to proteins, if you don't have the buildup of amino acids, then you don't attract so much pest to the plant. So um, that actually makes the, uh, it's called, I think it's called passive immunity. It makes the plant less attractive to the pest. So if we can get the plants operating in a more efficient way, 
the actual pest itself is not attracted so much to the plant. So that is that is really uh, one of the the aims with biostimulants is to make the plant less attractive to the pest. When we're not combating the pest, there's nothing there's nothing in the biostimulant which is going to kill that pest. It's really making the plant more resistant, like a vaccine, as you say, to to pest attack. I mean, we might do some of these things anyway, just the way we treat our plants. For, for example, let's say if I was growing lettuces, I'd make sure that I'd hardened them off, left them outside for quite a while before I planted them in the soil. Because I know that if I just put things which have been growing in the greenhouse and it's all tender, then the slugs are far more likely to go for them. So perhaps it slightly replicates that process in a way. I mean, also, I think it's been known that you shouldn't overfeed your plants with nitrogen rich fertilizer. You're much more likely to get pest problems. That makes your plants a lot more tasty for a whole range Exactly. Of yeah. Yeah. Uh, have you got any examples of perhaps some of the biostimulant products that you provide for gardeners now? Because it's still quite a new thing, really. Yes. I mean, I think the, the obvious one to mention to start with is, is the mycorrhiza based ones. Um, which, which is a fungi-based bi- biostimulant, which, which most gardeners have heard of now. They've been used um, a lot, particularly with, with rose growing, and they're very, very beneficial to roses. We, we have our own branded one called Roots Boost, which we sell a lot of. It's one, I think it's our, certainly our biggest selling biostimulant because, because of the mycorrhizal content and the fact that people are generally getting aware of mycorrhiza. But mycorrhiza as a fungi has a sort of symbiotic relationship with the plant. It's... it's um, helping the root plant um, take up n- nutrients and water more efficiently. And that's particularly beneficial for roses, but actually for many other plant types as well. So a lot of our customers now buy mycorrhiza for a whole different range of plants, not just for roses, because it, it is, particularly when you're planting out and you want the roots to be efficient early on, to take up plenty of nu- nutrients and moisture, the mycorrhiza will, will benefit that. So Certainly mycorrhizal-based biostimulants is probably the most well-known one in the garden market at the moment, but there are, yeah, a whole plethora of other ones coming along behind um, for all different types of uses. Certainly heard of mycorrhizae, and like you say, they are used a lot by when people are planting trees or planting roses. It's definitely people can see the value of that. I think I'd heard that they could extend the root system by something like 30-fold in some cases. It really sort of has a massive boost to the plants. Yeah. Do you think that they play a role specifically for the organic gardener then? Uh, yes. Um, the organic gardener is obviously has to think more closely about their choices. Um, they're, they, they're not going to choose a synthetic fertiliser. So they, they want the plant to be uh, relying on its, its, its own ability to take up water and nutrients. So uh, a natural fungi, it's naturally occurring mycorrhiza anyway, it's just we're putting it there in, in basically slightly higher numbers uh, in the soil than it would be normally. So it's a very, it's a very natural process. The, all these mycorrhizas occur in the soil anyway. We will just add a little bit more in certain situations. So it, it fits, I think, very well with, with, with organic gardening. Yeah, I suppose because we always think about organic gardening as having a, a sort of proactive approach to pest control, really. We're trying to prevent them happening in the first place rather than perhaps um, reaching for the bottle after they've, after they've happened and everything's got out of hand. It's, it's, it's definitely a proactive approach. And I think that fits in very well to organic gardening systems. 
Perhaps people are not aware of how the nutrition can affect a plant's resilience to its pests and diseases. Have you got any sort of examples of particular sort of nutrients that you might apply to boost the plant's sort of resilience to pests and diseases? Yes, I mean, there are a couple of examples there. I mean, we have to be slightly careful about any sort of claim we make in this this area because these biosimilants are, are not fungicides um, and they're not pesticides. So we, we don't make any claims about them controlling any pest or disease, but they, as I say, can make plants more resilient and certain biostimulants do help that. So a simple um, nutrient like sulfur, for instance, and we have some sulfur-based biostimulants, will protect plants from, from outbreaks of powdery mildew. And then you've got a, a nutrient like calcium also, which will which will help prevent other other diseases like bitter pit or blossom men rot. Men rot. Thank you. That's the other one I was thinking of. So you know, if your plant is is, is rich in those in calcium, then you're going to have less of those problems. So I think that's a direct correlation between certain nutrients and and certain diseases. I was actually fascinated to read that calcium can make plants less palatable to lily beetles. Yeah, it's, 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 again, it's not a claim I'm going to make openly. No. If you treat calcium with calcium, you won't get a lily beetle, but it's all part of the same story that it's, it's making the plant less attractive to that particular pest. So what we've seen is, is that plants that have this calcium content tend to have less lily beetle on them than others. And I, there are other products on the market that make similar claims. There's, there's quite a well-known brand that is that's calcium-based that allegedly deters rabbit attack and all sorts of things. And there's another one, I think, which says it deters pigeon attack. I, I'm not an expert in those particular products, but, but I mention them because calcium is, is mentioned quite a lot in this kind of area of making plants less attractive to certain pests. Well, that, that is fascinating, really. I mean, I mean, I realize you do have to be very careful about the sort of claims that you make. But um, I think organic growing is there's no one magic bullet as well. We, I don't know. I think it, of sort of multiple ways of demoralizing our pests, really. That's a, that's yes. a way to attack yeah. them. Yeah. And so if, obviously, if you can make your plants a little bit less sort of palatable to those pests, then that, that's that's all going to help. Well, we've given up growing lilies in our garden. They just they just absolutely decimate them. Yes, it, it's. Uh, I, I think with biostimulants, what, what why I'm particularly interested in them is, is is that making the plant less attractive to pests. And then what we can do is then we can just spot treat with biological control when we need to. So, you know, for instance, if we got uh, an invasion of aphids later on, then we can bring in lace springs or ladybirds, or whatever, and, and use that as a as a spot treatment. But if the plant itself is is healthier. And it's deterring all this best before we get to that stage. Then, then, then it also makes the whole biological control um, area a little bit more cost-effective. You can just spend the money when you really need to spend it, rather than having to flood in high numbers of predators all the time to keep keep the plants clean. That sounds a good approach. I mean, it is a sort of multi-pronged approach as well. I, I think of it as a bit like a combination lock. If you're using a number of different things, and it's much less likely that the pest is going to get resistant or become wise to whatever you're doing than if you're just using, let's say, one agrochemical, things things build up resistance to it quite quickly just Indeed. as you've seen yeah. with the cucumber growers so that multi-pronged approach i think is probably more sustainable in the in the long term um are there any other sort of microbes and you've talked about mycorrhiza are there any other ones that you have found that work quite well as a plant health product yes um 
the one I'm going to mention next is is a kind of probably the odd one out if you like because it's a crossover. But I mention it because it's it's an interesting way in the way that it operates. There's there's something called trichoderma, which is a, a fungi you put in the soil, and and that actually outcompetes other pathogens in the soil. So it almost like fills the space where that pathogen should be. So it's it's slightly different to mycorrhizae. It's operating in a different way because there is some claims there that it's actually preventing pathogens and controlling pathogens. You but it, it does have other properties as well, which is why we can sell it. Says so it it will actually stimulate those sort of fine white root hairs you get on on young seedlings, and it helps uh, a bit like mycorrhizae in some ways. It does help the formation of of rooting generally on young plants. So we tend to recommend it as a sort of propagation product. But obviously, in the background, we know that there is this ability to to be out competing pathogens as well. So I think trichoderma is quite a, an interesting fungi in the, in the biostimulant range. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard about that. I mean, I think I'd heard about it being used in research against other diseases as well. I think perhaps onion white rot as well. It was, and I have heard of other products as well which work along that as an antagonistic sort of organism that competes against the against the pathogens. So yeah, that is something that I guess we'll be sort of looking at more in the future. It's all quite complicated as microbiology, isn't it? There's a lot that we still don't understand. And I think it's, it's, it's so much more complicated than just using a pesticide to wipe something out. It's, it's a lot yes, more sort of finding it is Because it's underground as well and you, you can't see what's going on. It's not like you're looking at the top of a plant and you're thinking, well, there's pest there and there's not pest there now. Um, we can't really see what's happening in the soil. It, it's, it's not muck and magic, but it is difficult to, to sometimes comprehend what is happening there. Sort of following on from that, I mean, some people might say if you've got the right conditions in your soil already, shouldn't the bugs be there already? I mean, why do we have to add them? I think that's a fair point. Um, certainly with, with something like mycorrhiza in particular, Mycorrhiza will be a particular benefit if you are growing in a, in a, in a weak soil, if you like, in a Newton-poor soil. And if you're growing in a situation where, for instance, there's drought or areas where the plants are under stress, that's, that's where you see the maximum benefit. And that's maybe why you see mycorrhiza quite often used in sort of tree planting and the sides of motorways and things, because you're in a quite a harsh environment, poor soils. Um, and you need the plant to, to, to be acting at its, at its maximum. So, yes, if you've got a very um, healthy, organic, rich soil, I would say there is probably um, less need to, to apply some of these products because, yes, those microbes are there anyway. It's really when, you, when you've got a problem or you've got a, an environment where it's not so good and you need to, to improve the structure where you're going to see more of a benefit. I think I'd heard that applying chemical fertilizers such as phosphate fertilizers as well could sort of lower the incidence of these mycorrhizae being being around as well. So perhaps the history of the soil is important too. Yes. Um, following on from that, I mean, we've seen with um, biocontrols that you have to be really, really careful about the sort of conditions you apply them under. Is, is that the same for biostimulants? Yes, I, I think it's, there is elements there that, that you need to be careful about. If you're applying, you know, a biostimulant, for instance, a foliar one, for instance, and you apply that on a very hot day, um, you, you could scorch the plant like any other product you put on a hot day. So, And also temperature is very important. I mentioned temperature with nematodes in, in soil applications, but it's also the same with, with fungi and bacteria. So it, the soil needs to be at a certain temperature for these 
for the bacteria and fungi to be active. So if you were to apply um, some of these products uh, in the winter months, that's, that's not great timing. I mean, some of them will survive anyway. So, you know, things like mycorrhiza will sort of go dormant if we put them in autumn tree planting, that's fine. But you wouldn't, you know, for instance, put trichoderma on in, in the middle of the winter or some of our other biostimulants, that would be, a, would be a waste of time. So just like with biocontrols, you do need to read the label pretty carefully, perhaps particularly with the things which are sort of microbial as well, because they are living things. Exactly. Yes. We sort of hear quite a lot about adding microbes to perennial plants like trees and bushes and things. But is there a role for adding them to more short lived things like vegetables, things which are annuals and not going to be in the soil for so long? Uh, yes, I cer- certainly think with, with certain vegetables and, and salads and things, again, it's all about getting that nutrition right. If you can get the nutrition working more efficiently in a plant, um, you could actually boost the yields indirectly. So I think there, there is a benefit for yield increase for, for some plants, uh, but also particularly, I think, propagation. So when you're when you're propagating your plants, um, there's quite a few biostimulant products now, which will certainly help you with, with getting a better, better propagated plant, but getting those those fine white hairs going early on in the, in the plant life cycle. So definite propagation and certainly if for certain if you're looking to, to improve the yields on certain vegetables and salads, there's a certain benefit there. That's interesting. So this could be a whole new thing, really, adding these sort of biostimulant products to sort of vegetable plants as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think really there's still a little bit of an air of, let's say, snake oil about biostimulants. People see all these claims and, you know, it's not like you're adding a fertilizer where you know you're adding a certain dose of nitrogen or a pest control product or even with a biocontrol, you know, you can I've got a little tube and you can see these little mites crawling out and you know they're going to go and attack your attack your pests. But how, how do you convince the gardeners that these are sort of real bona fide things that are going to benefit your plants? Well, I think you're right, there the, the, the was uh, and perhaps still is a bit of sort of snake oil image on some of them. But I think um, times are changing and I, and I think you, you only have to look at the sort of companies getting involved in the production of biostimulants now. You've got some some large, you know, very professional companies now bringing out a lot of products in, in a very professional way. So, yes, though, you could go on the Internet still and find products which claim an awful lot um, and make some pretty outrageous claims. But uh, the products generally now that you will see certainly being used by growers and farmers are, are very well researched and, and there are very large companies producing those products now. So they the professionalism of, of these products now has, has gone to another level and the, the data and the information behind them is, is far more far more far-reaching and in-depth than it used to be. So I think the whole industry is becoming more professional with this type of products. For the gardener, um, yes, it's still very new. And, you know, if you go into garden centre... Apart from mycorrhiza, you probably won't see so many of these type of products. With the exception of seaweed, I think every, you know, most people are familiar with seaweed and seaweed is a biostimulant. And I think most people recognise the benefits of seaweed in, in growing. So there are sort of some old favourites there, but um, some of the new products I think is going to take time to trickle through. I mean, we, we have one called um, Soil Boost, which is, which is a plant-based biostimulant. Um, 
and we're getting great results with that. Um, for instance, on things like box tree hedges, which have been attacked by either blight or box tree caterpillar moth, that they're not they're, they're not stopping those particular pests and diseases, but they're helping the plant recover and put on new growth and put on new root growth. And it's a it's it's like a soil conditioner, if you like. So the, the sort of soil conditioning properties of some of these products are, are really quite interesting now. But uh, it's yeah, it's quite an education, and I think to to get that message across um, to gardeners to get them to understand that is it, it isn't just like whacking a bit of uh, MPK on. It's 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 very different approach. It can be little and often rather than sort of at certain times. Um, so again, it is a matter of doing your research and reading the label and making sure you use these products in the right way. One thing that you've perhaps skirted around, and I'd be quite interested for you to tell our listeners as well, that your products will are active against a certain pest or disease. Why do you have to be so careful when you say that? Um, two reasons, really. Firstly, is, 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 a, is, is a legal one or a professional one in the sense that these things have to go through regulatory processes. So if you make a claim on a product for instance, that you will control whitefly, um, you have to get a registration. So you have to go to the government to get a registration to make that claim. And, and to get those registrations is very, very expensive. I think last time I looked, it's over £100,000, even for a, a biostimulant type product to get those kind of registrations. So once you start making those claims, then you've got to go down the registration process. And that is not affordable for most companies um, because they don't deem the market to be quite big enough yet to, to pay those costs. So we don't want to go down the registration route for the obvious financial reasons, but also it's we don't want to make claims which we can't back up. So I think it would be a very strong claim to say, use this product and you won't get whitefly, or use this product and it kills whitefly. As you said earlier, it's, it's a it's a bigger picture. It's it's a number of factors which we're, we're using to, to make a strategy to combat pests rather than just saying, here's a bottle of this, put this on and this will kill it. It's a quite different approach to that now. I hadn't realised that the registration product was so expensive and I guess that really puts smaller companies at a quite a big disadvantage it really does mean that this sort of market can be dominated by a few big players which is what we have seen in, in the yes. past. Yes I think it's, it's there's, the, the, there's pros and cons to it obviously the disadvantage is that there's some good products which don't come to market uh, that perhaps should um, because those companies can't afford to bring them to market but I think on the plus side it has forced a number of very nasty, what I call nasty products, off our shelves because these products have a registration time period, if you like, before they have to be re-registered. And a lot of those products have now not been re-registered for financial reasons and also because of the sort of general environment, environmental movement. People don't like the idea of using chemicals. But I think the, the fact that it does cost a lot of money to bring a new insecticide to market has actually forced people to to look at other ways of controlling pests and i think that's helped with biological control because you know a gardener will go into a garden center and they will look on the shelf and they will they will see perhaps just two products for pest control and they're probably the same active ingredients and just bottled up in a different format so that will then make gardeners think well what else can i use oh i can use nematodes for controlling chafers and other jackets would they have done that if the, if the, if the um, shelf was full of pesticides still? Some might have done, but I, I argue that quite a lot wouldn't. So in, in that vein, where do you see the sort of future for biostimulants? I, yeah, I mean, we touched on a bit already, but I, I think you're going to see more of them. Um, I think you're going to see more widespread use of them. Uh, 
I also deal with professional growers and professional gardeners. So I'm, I'm visiting sort of large scale estates, places like Audley End and Hyde Hall and these sort of gardens. And, and I'm, when I'm talking to the gardeners there now, they're, they're getting very interested in the use of biostimulants and they're starting to use them. And then you get a sort of trickle down effect. So when, when the public goes to an RHS garden or a National Trust garden or an English Heritage garden, and they see the gardens they're using biostimulants and they're, they're always asking questions of those gardeners. Um, then, then they start to trickle into the, into the wider marketplace. And, that, and that's what I'm starting to see with, with the biostimulants, just like I did with biocontrol um, sort of 10, 20 years ago. It, it, the same sort of process is happening with biostimulants. So people are getting more confident in them, getting more knowledgeable on them. There's, getting to, there's more information on it. Um, I think the, the information part's very important. Once we can get more information out there, then, yeah, I think we will see a much, a much bigger role for them, especially with the move, you know, not to use synthetic fertilizers. People are aware of the problems with nitrates and things now. So uh, it, it is, it is a, a partial solution to that. So I think we're in quite an exciting place, really, with biostimulants. It's quite a dynamic future for them. Indeed, yes. I think it's, it, there is a, a distinct similarity to where we were with biocontrol. Um, a few years ago with biostimulants. It's, it's the next sector, if you like. And as we mentioned about what's going on in the soil, everything tends to be or has in the past been sort of focused on what's happening above the soil. But now people are very interested in what's happening below the soil. And um, when I remember Prince Charles talking about these things many, many years ago, and he was dead right. Um, he was just early about those ideas. And now many of his ideas are sort of far more mainstream. And, and I think it's, it's a great thing. It is a great thing. It's always difficult to get people interested in what's below their feet, isn't it? It's just yeah, it's not yeah. visible to them. Well, I think we'll leave it there. I have to say thank you very much. It's been absolutely fascinating. We've packed full of interesting facts, and I'm sure our listeners will be really interested in what you have to say. Thank you very much. Many thanks, Anton. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.